0: through the gospel of Mark and uh, this is our 11th week in the gospel of Mark. We're in uh, right at the end of chapter 3 today as we call this particular message unforgivable. If you've ever wondered about the unforgivable sin we're going to touch on that a little bit today. Uh, Writer David Rykoff was a guy who had a hard time believing what was right in front of his eyes. In 1986 Rykoff was working for a company in Tokyo and during that period of time they were working on a computer program that would allow their employees, people like himself, to write short little messages to one another after they logged onto the network. Well David wasn't very impressed by that. He thought, what kind of loser would log on to a computer just to talk to someone? And in a moment of decisiveness, he went into work one day and he quit. Sayonara, suckers, he said as he left. Good luck with your network. Of course, you know what that network became. We call it a little thing called the Internet. It was right at the beginning of that. He has a couple of other stories as well. Earlier in the 1980s, he was working as a a music critic. And he went to a concert and he heard a young blonde singer from Michigan. And he thought, boy, is she lousy. She will never make it as a singer. He wrote a terrible review, and that singer later became known as Madonna. <laughs> and then later, when he was working as an editor for a publishing company, he received a manuscript to look at, and he passed it off as, in his words, subliterate drivel. And an easy pass. Well, of course, that book turned out to be a book entitled Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. It went on to sell 15 million copies. It's one of the best-selling works of the 1990s. Interesting. Apparently, seeing isn't always believing. Sometimes when it's right in front of your eyes. We saw last week that in dealing with the crowds, Jesus was busy healing many with diseases, freeing many who were overtaken by demons. He ministered to the public, to the crowds, but he also sought to drive truth into people in very personal ways. And if you remember our theme last week, we learned that he wanted us to move from being fickle fans to becoming faithful followers. You know, there was always a reaction when Jesus preached. People didn't just sit around passively. They didn't sleep during his sermons. I'm not Jesus, so if you need to nod off, you're okay. (laughs) They either embraced him or they attacked him. They bowed before him or they berated him. And you know, it's really no different today in our world. When we encounter Jesus, we have to make one of two choices, rejection or acceptance. There's really no middle ground. If we don't choose acceptance, then by fault we are making the choice of rejection. And so today as we continue through Mark's gospel, we're going to see two strong reactions from people that sadly led to rejection. The first is from those very closest to Jesus, his own family, and the other is by a group that were very threatened by Jesus. And for some of them, seeing was not always believing, even when it was right in front of them. And so first, I want you to see that some of Jesus' own friends and his own family, they thought he was deranged. Look at Mark 3, verses 20 and 21. Then he, that is Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. His own family thought he was crazy. This is a reminder that sometimes when we choose acceptance and following Jesus, sometimes even our own family and friends may turn against us. We'll touch a little bit more on. Jesus's reaction to his family in a little bit later. But the second thing I want you to notice is that not only did his family think he was crazy, but his, the, the religious police showed up, and they thought that he was evil. They thought he was demon-possessed. You might remember earlier in chapter 3, remember the Pharisees and then the Herodians began to plot to destroy Jesus as his popularity swelled, they were very, very threatened. And now a new group shows up on the scene for the first time, the scribes. The scribes decide they need to take care of this rabbi. News had reached all the way to the capital city of Jerusalem about Jesus. Now, Jerusalem is about 90 miles away from where Jesus is. That's a several-day journey in Jesus' day. And the scribes, who in essence were the religious police, confront Jesus by making a very evil accusation. It's here in verse 22. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now notice, they don't deny that Jesus is healing the diseased people. They don't deny that he's casting out demons. But instead, they try to discount that power. They try to destroy Jesus' position. The New Living Translation puts it this way. They say he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power. To cast out the demons. Their insulting and vile attack on the Lord is two-pronged. And it's designed to turn public opinion against Jesus. The first thing that they say, attack number one, is that he is possessed by Beelzebub. The religious leaders often made accusations like this. We've seen that in various places in Mark already, and you'll see it in other places in the gospel. But here, in this particular situation, they are not saying that Jesus has any ordinary demon, but that Satan himself has taken possession of Jesus. And they use a very nasty name. This name Beelzebul comes from the ancient Canaanites, and it literally means the Lord of the dung flies, or the Lord of filth. That's what they accuse the Lord of being possessed by. The scribes were saying that Beelzebub was inside Jesus. That's their first attack. Their second attack is that they say that Jesus is doing this work, healing people, casting out demons, by the prince of demons. The word prince refers to the chief demon. And it's another way of saying that Jesus is bowing to Beelzebub and serving Satan. That's the attack that they make publicly against the Lord. And after laying this ultimate insult at the feet of Jesus, it's time for Jesus to respond. We see that in verse 23. And it says, he, that is Jesus, he called them to him and said to them in parables. Now they had just They had just declared that he was possessed by the devil. And what does Jesus do? Well, we see that he does two things. First of all, he calls them to him. Now, that's an interesting phrase there. That phrase was used of summoning an adversary into a court of law. So Jesus is saying, I challenge you. Come in here. I want to talk to you. I wonder, do you think they were nervous at all when Jesus said, come here? I got something to say to you. And then it says that he spoke in parables. A parable is an analogy. It literally means to lay something alongside. A a parable takes something that's easily understandable, an earthly picture, an earthly story, an earthly example, and it's used to explain a spiritual truth. Jesus uses this technique so often. I like how one commentator refers to parables as crisp, pungent thrusts that go to the soul of the listener. So I picture Jesus saying, come here, you guys. I got something to show you. (laughs) Jesus' answer is summed up pretty briefly and powerfully by first asking kind of an absurd question. Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's what you guys are accusing me of. How can Satan cast out Satan? Now, good teachers often will use rhetorical questions, and Jesus is a master of this. He does it all the time. But then he turns to the parables themselves. And Jesus is going to use the word divided, divided three times in the next three verses to prove his point. Now, that word divided means to be disunited, to be in discord, to be separated into parts. And so... In his first parable, Jesus says, a divided kingdom cannot stand. And I imagine his listeners, these Jewish people in his audience, were thinking perhaps of their own nation and of how Israel and Judah had split into two parts after the death of Solomon. Maybe they thought of that when Jesus said, a divided kingdom cannot stand. In verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And then Jesus uses another parable. He says a divided house cannot stand. In verse 25, we're reminded of the importance of a family, not fracturing. Jesus says if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. I want to just pause there for just a moment. To, I want to just remind us how important it is for the Lord's church to be a unified church. It is our calling to strive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I think that's now more than ever, that we need to be a church that stands united in gospel truth as our society and the world around us crumbles and divides over all matters of political and social and economic ideas and opinions. And I know you have your opinions and I have mine, but those are not what bring us together in the bond of peace. It is the Lord Jesus, friends, and that is where our unity must come from. We must continue to march forward on mission for his glory, else the house cannot stand. And so a divided kingdom, kingdom cannot stand, a divided house cannot stand. And then Jesus says, a divided Satan cannot stand. Jesus points out the absurd, absurdity of, of their evil argument here in verse 26. He says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Now think about that for a moment. If Satan were to cast out demons, it would defeat his own purpose, wouldn't it? Satan would never act contrary to his own self interests. He wants to destroy the work of God, not his own work. And so in verse 27, Jesus goes on, and it's kind of, I don't know, I kind of think of it as kind of the kill shot when he says this, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. And so Jesus continues to use this language of parables to make his point. And he says, if you want to take the property of somebody, you at first have to overpower the owner. And here, Jesus is saying that Satan is the strong man. But guess what? Jesus is the stronger Savior. He is stronger than the strong man. Jesus binds Satan and he plunders his possessions. One commentator made a point that I really like. He said, he thinks that these possessions, these goods that are being plundered are the helpless victims that Satan is holding in bondage through his demons. To plunder literally means to snatch, to seize, to carry away. And that's exactly what Jesus has been doing. And he continues to do today as he saves people, snatching them out of the bondage of sin and death, away from serving sin and Satan to following the Lord. That's the business Jesus is in. He is the mighty, mighty strong man. And so there's no way that the Lord of Lords is going to be in league with the Prince of Darkness. But that's the accusation these guys make. Jesus has come to conquer the evil one, to destroy the works of the devil. Listen to 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? To destroy the works of the devil. That is the work of our Lord. And so keeping all of this in mind, in context, let's now look down a couple of verses to verse 29 where Jesus brings up this so-called unforgivable sin. In verse 29, he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. To blaspheme means defiant irreverence. At its most basic level, it refers to, to speaking evil about God, about the work of God's Holy Spirit. One Bible dictionary puts it like this, to speak reproachfully, to rail at, to revile. Those are some pretty disturbing words, aren't they? What then is this unforgivable sin? Well, before we answer that question, I want to share just a story with you. I want to tell you about a man, a man who used to call me frequently on the phone. Every month or two, he would give me a call. His name was Thomas. Thomas never attended this church, but somehow he called, and one day I happened to answer the phone. And over the course of several years, Thomas continued to call me from time to time. And the word that comes to mind as I think about Thomas was that he was tormented. He was tormented. Whenever he called me, he would be very upset. Sometimes he would be in tears. I could hear it over the phone. When I would ask him how he was doing, he would often say something like this, not good, not good, I'm really worried. And I'd ask him what he was worried about, and invariably the answer would come, Pastor Rob, I think I've committed the unforgivable sin, and I'm going to hell. And it was like a cloud that weighed on him. Over and over, I had many conversations with him over the course of probably about three years, trying everything that I could do, everything that I could think of to help him to try to find forgiveness for whatever was tormenting him. As far as I know, he never found that freedom. And I never heard from him. One day he quit calling and I never heard from him again. Thomas was sure that he had committed the unforgivable sin. I got to say this, I was pretty sure he had not. So who was right? Who was right? What is this unforgivable sin? Is it taking God's name in vain? Is it yelling at God? Is it murder? Adultery? Is it divorce? Maybe it's rooting for the wrong sports team. Are you a duck? <laughs> or are you a beaver? Or are you an Ohio State fan? I saw Matt coming. Where are you at, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. No, it's none of these things. None of these things. In short, the unforgivable sin is attributing the mighty, miracle-working power of Jesus to Satan. The scribes witnessed this undeniable work of God in the life of the crowds as Jesus ministered. And instead of giving glory to the Lord at this amazing events that were taking place, instead, what do they do? They claim that Jesus is clearly possessed by Beelzebub. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. Author Matt Chandler puts it this way. The blasphemy of the Spirit is the knowledgeable, willful, and continued rebellion against the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is not a careless act, but a calloused attitude. It is not mere denial, but determined denial. Not mere rejection, but wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. It is a deliberate refusal of the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us in verse 30 why the people that have no forgiveness, why it is. Why they're guilty of this eternal eternal sin. Look at verse 30. For they, those that are saying of Jesus, they are saying he has an unclean spirit. The, The word for is like saying because. And notice that they they continued or persisted in saying this was not a one-time thing, but rather it was an ongoing, fixed, settled attitude in their minds that they tried to spread throughout the crowds to try and influence people to believe this lie from Satan himself that Jesus is inhabited by a demon. They hate Jesus. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean for us today, 2,000 years later? I just want to give you a few takeaways as we wrap this section up in Mark. The first one is this. Always remember the context. The unforgivable sin in this context is ascribing to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. It's nothing beyond that. Jesus is addressing a very specific circumstance here. The second thing that I want you to remember is that Christians cannot commit this sin. You see, when you trust and obey Jesus Christ for eternal life, then you have eternal life. You possess it. In 1 John 5, in in verses 11 and 12, uh, John reminds us, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Third, I want you to know this. If you worry that you've committed the unforgivable sin, likely you haven't. If you're mourning or grieving or anxious about sin, it means that God's Holy Spirit is active in your life, doing something. That's why I was convinced that my friend on the phone, Thomas, had not committed any unforgivable sin. And so then it's important for this fourth point for us to remember this. Satan wants to steal your hope and joy. He wants you to think that you've gone too far to be saved. He wants you to swim in shame and to be overwhelmed by guilt and anxiety and fear. He wants you to focus on things like, have I committed the unforgivable sin? That's exactly where he wants you because he knows that it sidetracks you. And it steals the hope and joy that the good news of Jesus comes and puts into our lives. And then finally, this passage is a warning. It's a warning to those who persist in unbelief. Maybe you've been languishing under some true guilt. Conviction is a good thing if it leads to commitment. Remember, We are choosing rejection until we choose acceptance. But when we repent of our sins, when we turn to Jesus, when we are born again, we are forgiven. And the good news is that God is ready and able and desirous to forgive us of each and every one of our sins. They are not unforgivable sins. The blood of Christ is powerful. But we must make that decision to follow Christ. We must consciously and purposely turn from rejection to acceptance. One could say that the only unpardonable sin today is that of continued unbelief. Well, I want to go back Because if you were watching carefully, you notice that we skipped a verse, verse 28. And I want to go back because I think that's where the freedom is shown in this whole passage. In verse 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. And so if verse 29 is the bad news for those who would resist and lie about the work of God, verse 28 Is the good news for those who would accept him. In her book Amazing Grace, the writer and poet Kathleen Norris shares what she calls the scariest story she's ever heard about the Bible. She writes about herself. Norris and her husband were visiting a man named Arlo. Arlo was a rugged and self made man who was facing terminal cancer. During their visit, Arlo started talking about his grandfather, a sincere Christian man. He said that the grandfather gave Arlo and his new bride a wedding present, an expensive leather Bible with their names printed in gold lettering. Arlo said that he left that Bible in a box and he never opened it. But he said that for months and even for years afterwards, his grandfather would keep asking him if he liked the Bible. And Arlo told Norris, the wife had written a nice thank you note and we thanked him in person, but somehow he couldn't let it lie. He always had to ask about it. Arlo said that he grew increasingly bitter towards his grandfather and even avoided him as much as possible in the ensuing years that is, until his grandfather passed away. And sometime after his grandfather's death, Arlo grew a bit curious and he opened that Bible. The joke was on me, Arlo said. I finally took that Bible out of the closet and I found that granddad had placed a $20 bill at the beginning of the book of Genesis and at the beginning of every book. I counted there were 66 books. Over thirteen hundred dollars. You see, for years Arlo rejected the gift, ignorant of its great value, resistant of what it could do in his life. Never, never coming to fully accept its worth, even on his own deathbed. You see, friends, our lives in Jesus are worth far more than thirteen hundred bucks. May we fully accept the reality of the grace and the mercy that we walk in when we accept the gift. And may we never choose to reject that gift by putting it on a shelf, by ignoring it, or by spurning its precious value. Well, this passage in Mark 3 closes out in verses 31 through 34. As Jesus is there with the crowds around him, he's in the house, and it says that his family is standing outside the house. The same family that thought he was crazy. They're outside the house, and it says that they're calling for him. And the crowd tells Jesus that his family is outside asking for him. And Jesus makes this statement. When they say, hey, your mother and your brothers, they're outside, they're they're asking for you. Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers? Who are my mother and brothers? And then he looks at that crowd gathered around him and he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Folks, don't let Satan sidetrack you. Choose His will. And when you do, you become a part of the family of Christ. And when we become a part of the family of Christ, we receive all of the great and mighty benefits. The forgiveness of sins. The washing away of the wickedness. Forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. And the gift, the gift of that Holy Spirit, the very Holy Spirit that was spurned and lied about by the scribes comes to live in each individual who comes into the family of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news.